2: to not be followers, to not just let the society or the authorities, I love it when, you know, the media quotes, the authorities say or the authorities don't say, they don't know, um, and we're just supposed to sort of accept that, whatever it is. So it's either fake news or no news. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to look at uh, three stories, three headlines, recent headlines in particular and put them on my couch and analyze them and um, <laughs> rant about them because um, we are not being told the whole truth. We are not being, uh, there's, there is not enough investigation going on behind the scenes or if there is enough investigation, investigation they ain't telling. So the three stories I'm going to be talking about are... Uh, the Vegas story, where there is still no motive. We don't know why he did it. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into that in great detail, because um, I already did a show about this. You can look after this show is finished today. You can look in the, uh, in the archives and find the show that I did about the, uh, the uh, Vegas shooter. And what's interesting is that there really isn't anything new to say. I mean, I just have a little new to say uh, uh, since then. But, I mean, that's the news. The news is that there is no news. The news is that, you would think, with all of the um, investigators, the police, the FBI, the, all the different people who, we're told, um, are swarming around and um, looking under every nook and cranny, and we still don't know his motive. Now, I have been, and, and you'll hear it in my previous show, I've been talking about his motives, um, But And actually, I reported what um, I believed were his motives to the FBI, in fact. Um, As you know, I'm a forensic psychiatrist in addition to being a clinical psychiatrist, and so I do this all the time. That's kind of my day job to examine people like Stephen Paddock, had he not killed himself, or actually to do psychological autopsies of people like Stephen Paddock. I mean, when people kill themselves or are killed. Usually it's when they kill themselves, and we want to know why. And um, so there's a, what's called a psychological autopsy, and that is you go through their whole life and you figure out reasons why they would have killed themselves. And essentially that's what I did here. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about him, but I'm going to talk more about the couple who was rescued from the Taliban. And I call this, harmless hippies or terrorists i mean there is so much we are not being told there is so much evidence that he that they were i mean yes i really i feel sorry for the kids i feel sorry for the wife because i believe that she's a battered wife and i believe that he is a wannabe or maybe more than that terrorist a a terrorist who hasn't quite Carried out an attack yet? But there, there. If you, I've done tons of research on this, which you kind of have to do if you want to pick out these fragments and put them together, because they're not, you know, um, they're not made clear in the mainstream media. So, if you want to take the time, like I did, to put together all these little fragments and put together a story, you can do that. But it seems as though we are purposely. Not being told the truth, both with the Las Vegas shooter and with the couple rescued from the Taliban, um, because people are hiding things that there are things that um, the authorities don 't want us to know now, I also want to talk about, and I think i 'll start with this a story that um, came out today uh, it 's actually been in the news before, and i've um, you know i 've commented on on it before I think i 've tweeted about it. But it's really coming to the fore now um, because there was a book that was published that made the New York Times bestseller list. Can't believe that. I mean, I, I really shouldn't say I can't believe it because you know this country is divided, and half the country um, would love to believe these lies uh, about Trump. But anyhow, I, I here's a um, a, um, a spoiler alert. I am not this is not going to be it, it may seem pro Trump but it is really anti these pseudo therapists um who are who are demeaning him who are who are you know calling him a narcissist when indeed they are and that's what this is all about it's both their narcissism and it's their desire to have their um political candidate or candidates, they're, you know, they're obvious, they're Democrats and they, they're angry, <laughs> still sore losers that they lost. And again, this is not, uh, as you hear the story, this is not, wh- whoever you voted for, you should be angry too that um, there are people who, are, who have licenses as psychiatrists and psychologists and marriage and family therapists. There are more actually, um, there are fewer psychiatrists involved in this because uh, psychiatrists are a little more conser- uh, conservative in, in the sense of, not not politically conservative, but conservative in the sense of not running at their mouth um, before they, you know, really have a chance to analyze what's going on. So it's more psychologists and marriage and family therapists and social workers um, who are... Uh, trying to make a name for themselves by um, calling Trump unfit for office. I mean, that's where this is all leading, that they are trying to impeach Trump by using their licenses as therapists to declare, even though they've never met Trump, they've never examined him, and um, it, it seems very unlikely. There has never been a report that I have found where any of them actually say that they met Trump, no less analyzed him. And in fact, quite to the contrary, in fact, in this story that just came out today, they, they have admitted they have not met or analyzed in person Trump. So let me give you some history of this whole phenomenon. Now, <laughs> and, a, uh, and with full transparency, as I'm sure if you've been listening to the show, you know. Um, I certainly, there, there was a, a rule, there's the, the American Psychiatric Association has long had, for about 50 years, what's called the Goldwater Rule. Now, this came about when Goldwater was running, and uh, there were people then, there were um, therapists then, who tried to say that Goldwater wasn't fit for office. And... Um, it then the, the American Psychiatric Association then adopted in their bylaws a rule that is sort of um, casually called uh, or referred to, I mean rather than its number, referred to as the Goldwater Rule, which means that you are not allowed as a mental health professional to diagnose um somebody who you have never met, who you have never treated, you've never evaluated in your capacity as a therapist. So um, these people who I'll tell you about um, have been flaunting the Goldwater Rule with with glee. Now, I started to say, with full disclosure, as you know, (laughs) I have from years... um, analyzed if not diagnosed uh people in the news who um, who in terms of what their psychological problems and so on and as a, but never have i done this with a political agenda um, it was never with an intent other than to teach um, to give people insights. I mean, you know, when I'm on television or radio or in the print, in print um, you know, I'm, oh, this is my passion in life, trying to give people insights from my uh, ex, um, education and experience uh, in psychiatry. And, um, and, yes, you know, it is much more understandable and it gets people's attention more if you can... Cite someone who is in the news um, as a demonstration of that disorder. Relationship problems, for example. Now, I did actually once, in thinking about this, I realized that I did actually once do this in regard to a president, um, but not not to impeach him or not with any political motives at the time. Um, It was President Bill Clinton, and that's because his affair with Monica Lewinsky... Uh, became exposed at the same time as my first book, Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them, came out. And I talked about Bill Clinton and what made him a compulsive flirt and a wife, um, you know, someone who uh, cheats on their wife and so on. But I also described Monica Lewinsky and what made her someone who fell for bad boys, a bad boy like Bill Clinton. So it was an equal opportunity analysis. And no, I have never met... Still to this day, either one of them. So I'm um, saying that. But this is different um, because what's happening, what's happening now in regard to Trump and in regard to these therapists uh, is very different um, in two regards, as I said. One, because, because it's so ironic, and I don't know why they're not embarrassed because it's so obvious, um, but they are calling him a malignant narcissist, a psychopathological narcissist, all kinds of narcissists. And they're not getting it or don't care or trying to hide it. You know, that's how good they are as therapists, that they think they're hiding it, that really their intent is, uh, or they're coming from narcissism, malignant narcissism and so on. And no, I have not met them in person either. <laughs> um, and the other definite difference is, that, as I said, they have a definite political intent, which is to to impeach <coughs> Trump. This is not just a not just an exercise to get media attention, but it's actually to go further and to impeach Trump. And that's why it's making news today, because um, they have they have been organizing and um, doing campaign fundraising. We, they're, they're using their book as a tool. They have distributed, or are distributing, they've distributed their book to some um, uh, senators and, and people in the House of Representatives, congressmen, and, um, and they're, dis- they're going to be distributing it to all of Congress. So, with the intent, of course, to rally the troops, <laughs> rally the people in Congress, to get them to impeach Trump. So, I hear the music. We need to take a break. When we come back, I'll tell you more about the, the uh, therapists in this organization and how, really, they're the ones who need mental health help. <laughs> so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
3: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, ranting today uh, about the choice you have of fake news or no news. And I've started talking about the current news today. Uh, the headlines a headline is Democrats are calling psychologists to talk about Trump's mental health. So we have some Democrats who are um, actually making hay, you know, from this book and from this group. Which is a group of about um, two dozen people. Now, what's really fascinating about this is the inner politics of this group. Um, The the, a woman, Bandy Lee, who is a psychiatry professor at Yale. uh, You know, Democrats have been calling her in particular to talk about Trump's mental health. And that is because she was involved as the, um, let's see, as the editor, um, the editor, the, as an author and editor uh, here, the book's head editor and a co-author. Um, the book is called "The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump." <laughs> uh, and what's interesting is that although she worked on the book, was a key figure in the book, she is now. Um, distancing herself from this group. Now, the group has long been led by a man named John Gartner, who is a psychologist. He is the founder of uh, a group called Duty to Warn, which is a group of mental health experts from across the country who are trying to push themselves into politics, and circumventing their profession's own rules about diagnosing public figures they have never evaluated themselves. Now, they call it the, this duty to warn, the name that they give themselves, is um, refers to a law that is in most states that says mental health professionals who have reason to believe a patient may become dangerous or violent towards others must reveal that information or else, or else risk Legal liability. Now, duty to warn, that has to do with if you have a patient and that patient expresses to you um, that they are planning on killing someone or creating some other kind of violence and um, you have uh, a general sense, you know, not just kind of generally, oh, I'm really angry and I'd like to kill somebody, Um, that's not a duty to warn. But um, if there, you know, it kind of varies according to the state. But in in a lot of states, it is if the person expresses uh, that they're going to kill a specific person or persons, and then you have a duty to warn that person, you have a duty to uh, contact the police. But... um, uh, but they're saying that, you know, they're using this as their name and because, you know, they're trying to say that they have a duty to warn the American public that uh, President Trump is dangerous. That's their, their um, thinking. Now, um, it also with duty to warn, it doesn't apply if there's no physician-patient relationship. So as I was saying, this has to be, a mental health professional, and um, a patient, a patient who tells you this. Now, if they haven't even met Trump, then obviously this doesn't apply, but it's very catchy, you see. It's very sensational. Duty to warn. Um, so that's what this is about. Now, the um, the interesting thing is that Lee, Bandy Lee, uh, who was initially affiliated with duty to warns, so much so that she was the key figure in the book that they wrote. Um, She has distanced herself from John Gartner, and now she's saying she disagrees with mental health experts diagnosing Trump and advocating for a political outcome. So now she's totally doing a 180, and she's getting as far away from Gartner as possible, which she should have realized before she wrote the book. Um, you know, obviously, Gartner is a kook, yes, kook <laughs> that 's not in the DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, and I have never met John Gartner, but um, clearly, I have read his website, and clearly uh, this man has significant psychiatric issues, and I admire Lee. Um, for uh, the courage to distance herself, at least at this point, but the damage is kind of done because of, you know she put together this book, and it is advertised on the Duty to Warn website. And Gartner is sending this book to you know whoever he can, um, and the group has um, has uh, started raising money. Because they want to give money to candidates who are doing things to try to impeach Trump or giving awards to people who are try- doing things to try to impeach Trump. Now, they've been calling Trump, uh, they've been saying he has a narcissistic personality disorder. They've been saying he has malignant narcissism, psychopathic narcissism. Some of them say that he's a sociopath or even has some form of dementia. <laughs> Uh, okay. So, um, so, and, you know, the problem with all this, especially since this book became a bestseller, is that now these, these conspiracy theories, um, have become part of the mainstream media because, you know, other people who would like to believe this in the same cause are, are using the psychiat, the psych, well, I'm not going to say psychiatrists, but the mental health professionals who are in this group using them as a tool to try to substantiate why Trump should be impeached. So everybody's kind of using each other, really. Um, you know, the group is using the politicians to, uh, to go about the impeachment, and the politicians are using the group to give validation or credibility to this idea that he could be unfit. Um, so now, for example, they've... Uh, they've um, they filed, they formed a PAC, uh, the they call it the 25th Amendment PAC. Um, and the, the, the point of it is to support candidates willing to work to remove Trump. And, uh, and, and 25th Amendment is, says uh, or relates to the transition of power should the president no longer be able to serve, and it provides a mechanism by which Congress can, um, and, and the majority of the president's cabinet, could act to rule the president unfit for office. So um, it's unclear how much money they've raised, but they have filed the PAC with the Federal Election Committee, Commission, and so far they have given $1,000 uh, to Jamie Raskin, a... Um, a uh, progressive Democrat from Maryland who recently introduced legislation to create a commission that would determine whether the president can fulfill the duties of his office. So, you know, <laughs> um, this is all, this is, this is their plan to, um, to give awards and give money to people who will help them with their cause. And again, it's, you know the politicians are using them as well. So, um, and, and Lee, you know, who mistaken, now Lee must be having, <laughs> it's interesting that she is, has got, done a 180, because I, I would imagine giving her, trying, giving her the benefit of the doubt, I would imagine that she finally has come to realize how crazy Gartner is, but also, I am pretty sure she is getting a lot of flack from the people at her university, at her medical school, um, because, you know, they don't like, whether, regardless of their, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they see how unethical this is. I mean, I, I think that each of these people, the people in this group and uh, and Lee, maybe Lee should get some kind of special dispensation, but certainly the people in this group, um, and Lee should be punished too. I mean, they should either get their licenses revoked, or they should be brought up before their... their um, governing bodies, you know, whatever that is uh, in terms of their the professional organizations like the American Psychological Association, for example, for Gartner, and they should be um, punished in some way or condemned in some way for uh, breaking this ethical code. Um, so anyhow, Lee um, wrote in the book as an excuse for why it's okay to do this book that they're attempting to assess dangerousness. Rather than make a formal diagnosis, so she's wiggling around and saying, "We're not, you know, we're not uh, making diagnoses. We know we didn't meet Trump, but we're, um, but we're we're just assessing how dangerous he is." Of course, you know. Then there's a whole other body of uh, literature that is very hard to assess dangerousness. Now, I have not read, read that book yet. Um, but I do know that you know it is difficult to uh, to it, it's it's wiggling around the ethical rules. Um, now Lee said we do not diagnose him. We do not make claims that require a full inter- <laughs> that require a full interview. Interview really assessing dangerous doesn't require a full interview. You can just kind of casually decide whether somebody is dangerous or not. And then she wrote in the prologue. It doesn't take a psychiatrist to notice that our president is mentally compromised. Oh, give me a break! So she's kind of, you know, going back and forth. I mean, um, contradicting herself and so on. Um, so that is a, that is a big concern. Um, there was uh, they've been having town meetings. Um, and there was, a, there was a town meeting in New York where, uh, where they were discussing how to, you know, what to make of this whole movement. And there was a man who stood up and said that his name was Lenny, and he said he was a Bernie Sanders delegate from Virginia and a retired therapist, and he challenged the idea of attacking Trump's psychology. He, I like what he said, though. He said, this is a cheap shot. Uh, this is mis- a masturbatory activity. They are engaging in their own form of narcissism. Yay, Lenny. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, it does seem true that um, President Trump may well have some narcissistic personality traits, which is a far cry from pathological narcissism or malignant narcissism. I mean, there's a thing called healthy narcissism. And um, I think that that one could say that he has that, and certainly anyone who runs for president of the United States, if not anyone, then most people, anyone who thinks of themselves as being capable of leading the world, you know, I mean, being the president of the United States is essentially the leader of the world. And um, if you don't have some healthy narcissism to believe in yourself enough to think that you can do that, then you shouldn't be running for president. And at that, we have to take another break. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) These these kinds of things just drive me crazy because um, it's just, You know, and somebody has to call them out. And thank goodness for good old Lenny in New York. Um, My applause goes out to him. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Uh, I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we'll be right back.
3: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, Um, talking to you about how you should not be lemmings, how you should read between the lines, how you should recognize that we're getting fake news or no news. And one of the examples of no news that I'm going to talk a little bit about right now, but if you really want to hear my whole analysis um, other than this last part, I'm not sure if I talked about this in when I did um, my uh, Voice America show about this, um, but I don't remember if I had <laughs> had distilled it down to this, but go check out that previous um, show in the archives and so because today I'm just going to do a little um a little P.S., a little footnote. And as I was saying earlier, um, I did report all of my hypotheses, you know, as a forensic psychiatrist who does, you know, this this is my day job, this is what I do uh, to analyze people who are alive or dead, most of them are alive, (laughs) Uh, criminals. And and so my addition to what I said in the previous show, uh, analyzing Stephen Paddock, was... um, the three, is- three main issues, I think that um, and of course, nobody, you tell me, write into me <laughs> from Voice America. If you think, if you have heard this anywhere or read this anywhere, please write into me because I have not, I have not, and I've done tons of research, and, you know, it's the things that people don't dare say, and you know you can count on Dr. Carroll to say them, right? Okay, well, I think, now we know that, well, at least the information we have which, of course, changes as the authorities change their underwear. But the information that we have is that, um, that Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, was gathering his arsenal of weapons, particularly over the past year. Now, has anyone thought of um, or, as I said, not mentioned um, the fact that perhaps he was 64 Uh, Not all men who are 64 are impotent by any means. There are plenty who go on way beyond that. Uh, Fully, actually, actively, sexually, sexual. (laughs) Um, But uh, it would explain a lot if indeed the year before he started, uh, or when he started gathering the arsenal of weapons, guns, phallic symbols, he had become impotent. Because that's what people do. Um, and I think maybe yeah, I did mention this in my previous show because I, I may have asked you to think about um, uh, people you know, men you know, who have a lot of weapons, who collect guns. Now I'm not. This is not a pro or anti NRA thing at all. This is a psychological analysis of men who collect a ton of guns. Um, and these are, these are little men. The, well, either they are little, you know, physically they are little, have little penises, um, or they are impotent because, um, in fact, uh, the guns are phallic symbols, which means that the guns symbolize the penis, symbolize the power of the penis. And so if you are feeling inadequate um, yourself because of your size or your performance or whatever, then what do you do? You go out and buy an arsenal of guns because then that restores your sense of being a man, being, in fact, a powerful man. I mean, you know, it, it is telling um, as to how little uh, or inadequate he felt the fact that he bought such a huge arsenal of guns. So, I, I you know, and, and who would know whether he was impotent or not? Mary Lou, well, probably <laughs> Probably more than one person, but um, certainly Mary Lou Danley, his Philippine girlfriend, who uh, is still a mystery um, at, or, or the authorities are not telling, but she reluctantly came back to America. Um, she did not hop on the first plane to try to help authorities you know, figure out what happened and why and so on. She was traveling back and forth between, between the Philippines and um, I think it was, it was Hong Kong, or um, I think it was Hong Kong. Anyway, she was traveling around, and she was very elusive. And uh, the authorities could not keep her in one place, and they had to do a lot of begging and maybe threatening to get her to come back and talk to them. And as it was, she got a lawyer, of course. She lawyered up. And um, it does not seem like she told them very much. But if, I, if she was sitting in, on my couch, the first question I would ask her, besides why was she avoiding uh, coming back and talking to us and what does she have to hide, I would then ask her about whether Stephen Paddock was impotent or whether he was small <laughs> and whether she thought that maybe the guns... Had something to do with his feelings of inadequacy. Now, whether she would admit that, you know, about their sexual activities or his, um, uh, you know, what what his anatomy was like or anything else—that's a question. But I mean, you know, at this point, he's dead, and uh, I don't know. Perhaps she wouldn't want to. I don't know, she doesn't strike me as the type who would feel any compunction about talking about these. I mean, it's embarrassing, but I don't think she would care at this point whether she let people know about about him, these details about him. But anyhow, not only um, that, not only um, am I thinking that right before he started buying all the guns he developed, he became impotent, but also... He had little, again, this is my theories, as a forensic psychiatrist, I never met him. <laughs> um, he had little man syndrome. Now, he was not short, and I'm not necessarily at this, in this, um, with this theory referring to the size of his sex organ, but he had little man syndrome in terms of how he felt about himself. And this was in comparison to his father who was a notorious bank robber on the wanted list of the FBI. And, um, and as I talked about in my previous show on Voice America that you can look up, um, I talked about how that was the, that was the um, turning point, that was the incident that shaped Stephen Paddock's life the most. When he was seven years old and the FBI came uh, to his family's home and and ransacked the place and arrested his father for a bank robbery. And they had tried to hide it from him, but clearly, you know, his father disappeared after them. And his mother told him that uh, his father died. I mean, that that incident of the FBI ransacking the home, arresting his father, coupled with his mother telling him that his father was dead rather than that his father was in prison, were the formative uh things in his childhood that that ultimately led to what happened I mean <laughs> with these other issues on top of that now you know little boys have edable rivalry with their daddies um, and they for their mother's love, and so um his father w- was you know, this big, big man, this big uh, bank robber, this tough guy. And um, he would have been competing with him for, for his mother's love. And, um, you know, it kind of made it screwed him up even more when then his father was dead, you know, or was, was, was told him that his father was dead, and that, in a sense, he, he uh, um, had his mother all to himself. I mean, he and his younger brother's. So basically he was screwed up by the time he was seven, and especially even later when he, well, he realized that what was happening more than adults gave him credit for when his father was arrested, but then that lie that his mother perpetuated for years about his father being dead rather than in prison, at some point he found out the truth, and so now he knew that he could trust his mother in addition to his father being on the FBI Most Wanted list. And another key factor was how his father was arrested uh, that after he escaped from prison, his father was arrested again uh, in Las Vegas. So there are all these reasons. You know, you don't... I mean, you really can put these things... I can put these things together. Uh, Yes, could there be more things? Like, for example, you know, the fact that that the uh, authorities said that, oh, this absolutely has nothing to do with ISIS terrorism? Absolutely not. Um, You know, that... uh, I, I, I think the jury is still out on that. Well, let me talk about more. I, wanted, I wasn't going to talk about that so long, but it's just, it just really it just irritates me that we're not hearing more uh, information about that. But I want to talk about the couple held by the Taliban who, was, who were um, rescued. Uh, Caitlin Coleman, she's 31, and Joshua Boyle, her husband, he's 34. They have three children, two boys and one girl, and there was one other girl um, who supposedly was killed by the Taliban. Um, it was, the, the Taliban caused an abortion, or, you know, the story kind of is a little vague. Um, but, but they were, um, you know, the question is, um, Joshua Boyle, or not the question, but if you look into Joshua Boyle's history, he has a history of being a supporter of terrorists. In fact, he um, when he became a supporter of um, Omar Qadar, that name may sound familiar. Omar Khadar was a Canadian um, young man who was brought to the Middle East, um, including Afghanistan, by his father, who was essentially a terrorist. He was affiliated with Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist organizations. And um, so uh, he brought his son, Omar, to, um, to Afghanistan, where there was a fight between the Taliban and American servicemen. And Omar Qadar killed um, an American serviceman. He threw a grenade that killed an American serviceman, a U.S. Army sergeant. And he was 15 at the time and he was put um he was brought to Guantanamo Bay from and he was he was housed there from the time that he was 16 to 26. He then got released and went back to Canada and sued Canada for not uh doing more to protect his rights because he was a teenager at the time and he just got 8 million dollars. 8 million dollars. I mean that in itself is is <laughs> A, a travesty. It's unbelievable. When I read about this, it's been, it was in the news a few, I don't know, a couple of months ago, when I read about his getting $8 million. I, I couldn't believe that this were, was true. I mean, do we have that much guilt? You know, he, there is no question. He pleaded guilty to having killed the serviceman, and then he changed his plea. Anyhow, I need to stop. I will go to take another break. I will come back with more about this couple, things you have not heard from mainstream media. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome
3: back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking to you about uh, the headlines, analyzing them, putting them on my couch, and asking you to please, please insist that the authorities, whoever they think they are, (laughs) uh, tell the truth, tell more, investigate more. And um, as examples, I have given cases of um, the Las Vegas shooter, and I started talking about the couple rescued from the Taliban. And also, of course, at the top I mentioned um, this ridiculous group of therapists who are trying to claim that uh, President Trump is not fit for office, and they're, of course, um, violating all kinds of ethical rules and just trying to get attention for themselves and having the audacity to call him narcissistic. Anyhow, getting back to the couple. Okay, so Caitlin Coleman, Joshua Boyle. Now, um, before they went to Afghanistan, um, he, as I started to say, was a... a, um, what he devoted himself to trying to get the release from Guantanamo of this man Omar Qadar, who was fought on the side of Al Qaeda uh, against Americans and killed an American soldier. Now, um, why, am, why is that important? It's important because um, through his through his activism to free this terrorist. Um, Joshua Boyle met the sister of Omar, uh, and he they ended up getting married. They, you know, they worked on on Omar's case, and you know, so they spent a lot of time together, and they ended up getting married. And um, and if you recall, uh, the significance of that is that her father, there's no question that he was affiliated with Al Qaeda, and in fact, she had been married three times before. Uh, by two husbands that her father had chosen for her, and um, and at one of these uh, weddings in the Middle East, um, Osama bin Laden was a guest. Now you're not going to try to tell me <laughs> that her family, you know, were not Al Qaeda sympathizers. I mean, as the brother already was in, in Guantanamo for that, for for fighting on their side. The father we know was on their side, and what? Do you think the um, the sister, the woman who Joshua Boyle married, was not in the same of uh, the same persuasion? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that that's not true. She, um, I don't know that she fought physically uh, on the side of Al Qaeda, but um, certainly she. See, you know, if Osama, listen, <laughs> if you're against Al Qaeda and Osama, you don't have him at your wedding. <laughs> So, anyhow, um, when they came back to Canada, that's when she and, and Joshua Boyle met. And I should have clarified that Joshua Boyle is a Canadian. Caitlin Coleman is American. So, um, so they stayed married, for, uh, Joshua and the sister of the terrorist stayed married for a year. And it seems from the things that I read that she was the one who divorced him. And... Um, he it seems uh, wanted to get married. He got married in, on a rebound, and he had been friends with Caitlyn Coleman since they were teenagers because they both liked Star Wars, and they met on the internet, and they kept up a friendship on the internet. And he then um, met her and, and you know convinced her um, fairly quickly to uh, to get married. Um, I mean, he was divorced in 2010. They got married um, a year later to, He got married to Caitlin a year later. And then a year after that, um, when approximately, on July 4th, 2012, when she was five months pregnant, he convinced her to go with him to Afghanistan. They went to some places near Russia and then to Afghanistan. And he didn't tell his family that they were going to go to Afghanistan. Um, presumably, he told her. Uh, but in any case, what woman goes hiking at five months pregnant? The only woman that would do that, that would put her baby in jeopardy, put herself in jeopardy, is a woman who is being controlled by her husband. Now, Joshua seems to me just like Omar Mateen and other terrorists who you have heard of who are wife abusers. I believe, and this is my opinion, I have never met any of these people, okay? But I'd lo- I would love, to, uh, I would love to meet Caitlin Coleman and rescue her from Joshua Boyle, from her husband, um, which she needs rescuing from even more than she needed rescuing from the Taliban. Um, since they have come back, she has not said a word. Um, he has done all the talking, and he, uh, she's, he had her send this email to a newspaper. And so, of course, there's no way of knowing that she actually wrote that. And why aren't we hearing now that she's in a hospital in Canada? Oh, yes, I left out one of the juiciest parts. Um, when America came to rescue them with the help of the Pakistanis, um, and the America sent a plane, an American plane, to rescue them. He refused to get on it because he was afraid. Since he knew about, you know, the uh, the man who he had well, it was his his brother-in-law, actually, one-time brother-in-law, who had been in Guantanamo for ten years. He was afraid that he was going to have the same fate. Now, why would he be afraid of that unless he knew something that he had done? Um, that would deserve him to be put in Guantanamo. So he refused to get on the American plane, and they finally sent a Canadian plane to pick him up, and they're in Canada, and she's in a hospital in Canada. And there has been no news as to why she's there. She went there as an emergency in the middle of the night, and um, we have not heard a peep as to what her problem is there. Um, She is still wearing the uh, clothes. In fact, let me... Let me tell you, um, there, there's a writer, Tarek Fatah, uh, he's an author and columnist in Canada, and he wrote an article called How Pakistan Fooled America, um, and, but, and how, and how these, this couple fooled Canada. And he t- he's, he's able to um, pick out specific things. He said um, that if he, you know, that all the non-Muslim journalists are so scared of being labeled racist, simply for asking the most obvious questions, the most obvious loopholes. And so he said that the first question he would have asked them was, when did you convert to Islam? And um, he said two things sprang out uh, to him from the, two days, the first two days of television coverage, uh, which was really only the husband talking. And he said first was the overnight change in the husband's appearance. He had changed from his appearance into a mustacheless beard, which is a trademark of any political Islamist bent of mind. In other words, he's saying that he is, um, you know, I don't think he's just saying that he's a Muslim or, you know, that he believes in Islam, and he's saying that there is, um, that there was a connection, that he went, and, and there were other, they went, that he went, he wanted to go to Pakistan to, in fact, join up with the Taliban and in fact, there, there are reports that the U.S. intelligence admitted after the, re, after the rescue that they long suspected that his visit to Afghanistan was to link up with the Taliban. So why did they let him return to Canada is my question. Why didn't they make him get on that American plane or leave him in, in Pakistan? Um, they should have taken the, the wife and the children and brought them to safety and left the husband unless he was going to talk. Um, this writer also said that he noticed that the husband kept changing the way that he talked. He changed an accent depending upon his, au- his audience. When he first spoke, his accent was a mix of Arabic, English and Pakistani terminology. Then when he was in Ameri- when he was uh, talking to American media, he talked with American pronunciation. Canada media, he talked to- with Canadian um, pronunciation and inflection. And he brings out all kinds of other things, particularly Caitlin. Uh, he, I just want to read you this. Caitlin has demonstrated everything a Taliban-type Muslim woman would be. She switched from her black burqa to a stylized Egyptian hijab and then kept her mouth shut and let her husband do her talking for her. I think she is a, a battered woman hiding in plain sight, and we need to rescue her. We also need to um, watch the husband very carefully. Okay, these are three examples of headlines that we um, are not being told the truth about, fake news or no news. So you need to demand the truth. Also, just one more thing. Um, I want to mention my book that just came out, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. So um, you can check out my website, terroristtherapist.com, or the book's website, uh, Terrorism4Kids.com, Terrorism4Kids.com. the number 4, kids.com. All right, so you can tell why I'm totally uh, passionate about all of this. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.